episode of Stitch Safari, I'm honouring two amazingly talented and creative embroidery artists, Sonia Delaunay and Mae Morris. Two very different aesthetics, yet both used stitch in their work to great effect. From time to time, I'll be introducing women who went against conventions or broke boundaries in their own way, some very quietly, some not so. But one thing these women all have in common is that they honoured their craft through their use of embroidery. Let's delve a little deeper. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight, we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Kathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. There's a multitude of unnamed women throughout history who should be mentioned here. For instance, I'd love to name each and every woman who worked on the Bayeux Tapestry, from the weavers and dyers to the spinners and embroiderers. But history often overlooks the role of women, especially in relation to textiles and embroidery. And time or wear often erases a stitch, and so too the love and passion required to create it. So while the women I'm going to mention are well known, I believe they've inspired, taught or encouraged more women to use their textile related and embroidery skills to record loss or captivity, to rebel or protest, to make art, to set up their own businesses, to promote their identity, communities and connections, or simply to earn an income. And I'm going to begin with one of my all-time favourite artists, Sonia Delaunay, who had a lifelong fascination with colour and shape. Inspired by the Fauvists, who emphasised painterly qualities over the realistic or representational, Sonia used spontaneous colour to construct textiles embodying her trademark style, a mix of Russian folk art along with elements of Parisian avant-garde. Sonia was an artist who saw no distinction between fine art and applied art, manifesting her aesthetic in either a painting, bookbinding, a quilt or a dress. She became a statement for the new breed of the creative modern woman. An early patchwork quilt made in 1911 for her son Charles was a breakthrough piece where she moves from figurative work to the abstract, showing her use of this spontaneous colour technique. This same technique was used to create other objects around her home, such as lampshades and curtains. 
But before long, Sonia's art became wearable. It was after the outbreak of World War I that Delaunay relied heavily on her work in costume design to earn an income after the Russian Revolution cut off funds from her homeland. She was commissioned in 1917 to create garments for the Ballet Russe's adaption of Cleopatra, enabling her to support both her husband and son, yet still enabling respect for her artistic integrity, a most unusual, if not unique, situation for a woman at that time. Using her simultaneous visual language of dancing colours, along with the rich and glittering golden textures offered by the theatrical textiles, Delaunay succeeded in gaining other notable commissions in ballet, theatre and film, creating both eye-catching sets and costumes. Her designs were bold, colourful and geometric, and thoroughly modern. The 1920s saw Delaunay transition to needlework and garment making as her primary mode of expression, applying her spontaneous technique to both design and construction. The modern woman of the era rejoiced in her fashions with a focus on real-life requirements such as bathing costumes, driving caps, embroidered shoes and bags, along with simple dresses – all of which included a melody of colour and geometric shapes, creating a visual rhythm closely related to her paintings. Paris loved Sonia, enabling her to establish her own studio, aptly named Sonia, dedicated to her private clients, as well as an atelier with French couturier Jacques Haim. She skillfully built and marketed her brand in what what was really a male-dominated era, emerging as an influencer and projector of modernism, not only designing and selling clothing worldwide, but also working as an interior designer, making over private homes and, on one occasion, a nightclub, La Petite Casino. Delaunay presented a lecture, The Influence of Painting on the Art of Clothes, at the Sorbonne, where she discussed the revolutionary idea of pret-a-porter, or ready-to-wear fashion. She created large murals for the 1937 International Exposition of Art and Technology in Modern Life, commissioned by the French government. Sonia was the first living woman to have a retrospective at the Louvre in 1964 and when asked if her gender may have affected her thinking and work, she replied, I never thought of myself as a woman in any conscious way. I'm an artist. Delaunay really tested the limits of colour and form in her garments, quickly becoming a high fashion brand, unifying her subdivided creative processes. She understood exactly how her prints should be used, as well as the manner of their construction. 
Her prints had a wonderful painterly quality to them, giving them a handmade aspect that added a wonderful sense of movement. Sonia's use of embroidery in her work shows her curiosity to discover new ways to explore colour and texture, aligning her with her cultural Ukrainian connections. She believed strongly in the ideas behind the arts and crafts movement, convinced that art should be applied through all aspects of life. Her garments were visually harmonious, attracting an onslaught of female followers. The 1920s saw Delaunay's creativity respond to the Paris avant-garde when she began incorporating surrealist text on her garments in a collection of embroidered poem dresses that became innovative performance pieces. By the 1930s, her textiles had evolved into mostly geometric lines and shapes, wheels, arcs and flowers. It was also a time when she became aware of the possibilities of mass machine production. Her work was artisanal and expensive. Movie star Gloria Swanson was among her clients, but she also designed fabrics for the Amsterdam luxury store Metz & Co and later Liberty of London. Sonia Delaunay was a pioneer, spanning the arc of the 20th century, but it wasn't until later in life that her work was fully recognised as the perfect marriage between her art and her craft, fluidly moving between fine art and textile design. Today, many of her designs are considered national treasures and they still reach out to influence their enticing power over countless graphic designers, artists, fashion designers and embroiderers, including me. The diversity and scope of her whimsical, vividly coloured work, playful lines and repeated shapes will always exert a timeless appeal. Now on to Mae Morris, artisan, embroiderer, designer, jeweller, teacher, lecturer, socialist, activist and editor. May, the younger daughter of arts and crafts leader William Morris and Jane Morris, knee burden, was surrounded by art and craft from a very, very young age, followed by formal training in both design and production. So it's not surprising that May became a remarkable embroiderer and designer, studying at the National Art Training School, later becoming the Royal College of Art, specialising in textiles and embroidery, particularly Opus Anglicanum, the magnificent form of fine, rich needlework developed in medieval England for use primarily on church vestments. Initially taught to embroider by her mother Jane and Aunt Bessie Burden, both of whom had been taught by May's father, William, uh, May eventually took over the management of Morris & Co at the age of 23, supervising all the embroidery operations commissioned by clients in the Morris House style or the new arts and crafts aesthetic, favouring 
stylistic simplicity, high quality and designs inspired by pre-industrial examples. Dismayed by the lack of support for women practic- uh, practitioners where membership of the Art Workers Guild was only open to men and where between 1819 and 1922 at the Academy of Arts, women members were non-existent. May opted to found the Women's Guild of Arts in 1907 along with embroiderer Mary Elizabeth Turner. Their aim was to keep to the highest level the arts by which and for which we live and to create a mutually sustaining atmosphere of camaraderie through meetings and exhibitions. It's clear that May recognised and used her privileged position and advantages in education, talent and financial stability to help better the lives of women who were less fortunate. May regularly took part in arts and crafts exhibitions where her work displayed either unique or limited repeats with variations in design and colour. Questioning why these examples of fine craft have been so long overlooked, the answer seems to be in part because they were made for domestic use and that they were inherently fragile. Jan March, writing for the Royal Academy in 2017, notes, It was the standard denigration of women's work as essentially second or third rate that kept her works from critical and public attention. By the 1890s, May was recognised as an authority on historic needlework as well as a significant member of the arts and crafts movement. In 1893, May published Decorative Needlework, a book outlining her philosophy of art and design, where she advocated the study of nature, stating, The living flower should inspire a living ornament. This book may dedicated to those who, without much previous knowledge of the art of embroidery, have a love for it and a wish to devote a little time and patience to its practice. Her designs are organic with flowing forms based on stylized flowers and foliage, with silk-winged birds hiding amongst the leaves, or gothic text quotes from ancient and modern verse. She also championed the use of a limited number of stitches, using stitch direction to vary the subtle shifting play of light over the surface of the embroidery. Aided by her father from a very young age, followed by sketchbook requirements at college, May acquired the habit of observation and sketching that continued throughout her life. Her botanical studies hint at the simple elegance that characterise her designs. May championed and pioneered art embroidery, helping to raise its status from an amateur pastime to a serious artistic pursuit, requiring skills in design, technique and the use of colour.
Her ideas were distributed through publications, lectures and teaching at a number of leading art schools, influencing a generation of students in London, Birmingham and Manchester. Highly critical of the economic structures resulting in low prices for handmade embroidery, where prices didn't reflect either the aesthetic value of the work or the value of the labour involved, may assess the situation by saying, No human being has the right to buy fineries at a price which cannot possibly represent a fair remuneration to the worker. Both May and her father paid their skilled outworkers a living wage at a time when textile workers usually received a lingering dying wage. In 1899, May delivered a speech entitled Decorative Needlework at the International Congress of Women, condemning the economic systems that sold embroideries as women's work at prices that devalued both the work and the worker. May embarked on an American lecture tour in 1909-1910, speaking at Glesner House, a home decorated by Morrison Co. textiles and wallpapers, also delivering a lecture, Medieval Embroidery, correcting the myth that embroiderers were high-born ladies of leisure to the reality of professional men and women who worked to safeguard the value of their skills. She also attended a meeting of suffragettes at Carnegie Hall in New York, admitting when asked, my interest in suffrage is linked with the guild workers in the arts and crafts. A fervent supporter of trade unions and professional support for women artists, May saw education as offering the possibility of a viable career in the arts for women and being a key uh, component to gender reform in society. May was a passionate advocate for sound design that was based on a knowledge of history, reverence for the natural world, respect for craft and the union of inspiration and labour. In 2016, one of May's embroidered books was unearthed, housed at the Grolier Club, a private bibliophile uh, club in New York City. The discovery of this truly stunning embroidery matches a design drawing by May that's housed in the Ashmolean Museum, which holds many of Morris's sketches in its collection. It shows the genesis of the design for the book cover as an holistic object. It's believed the book has been more or less untouched since the 1930s and as a result, it's in an outstanding uh, condition. Made of green silk, embroidered with coloured silks, metal thread and beads, covering a book titled Embroidery and Lace, published in London in 1888, from a translation published in French, translated by Alan S. Cole, a friend of May's father. The book's a history of embroidery from antiquity to the present, and the cover has embroidered initials worked into the design.
E-L for the French author, A-C for Alan Cole, and a tiny M for Mae Morris. It was first shown at the Grolier Club in 1903 from the collection of Samuel Putman Avery. The Grolier Club finally acquired the book sometime in the 1930s. The spine of the book is covered in a mass of golden tendrils that spill onto the front and back covers. Even the pages have an incredible stamped gold embossed paper edge and still retained with the book is the original embroidered bookmark. It's an exceptional and exquisite find. I think you'll have to agree, while Sonia Delaunay and Mae Morris were worlds apart in terms of their artistic practices, their commonality of passion for their art incorporated and promoted embroidery as an art form in and of itself. They were women who strongly believed in the ethos of the arts and crafts movement and who saw no division between fine art and applied art. Thank you for listening and for your time. What fascinating icons these women are still. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have in presenting it to you. But there's much more to come in 2022, so do stay tuned and subscribe. Stitch Safari has now reached over 7,500 downloads. Wow, and that's all thanks to you. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Warp Magazine and listed in the top five textile industry podcasts as at January 2022 by Feedspot. I'm extremely grateful. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over. Till the next exciting episode of Stitch Safari and our next inspiring adventure into stitch, embroidery and design. Bye for now. <music>